This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity. Uh, today we're going to start off with an interview with two directors of a new documentary on gay marriage. And uh, the documentary is uh, Saving Marriage. And they are on the line already. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Dan. Uh, this is uh, John uh, Henning, Mike Roth. Um, yeah, welcome. Uh, how it took a long time to make this documentary. Uh, it was about the gay marriage uh, struggle in um, Massachusetts. That's right. Uh, it it did take. It took an awfully long time. It took a long time for the story to unfold. Um, but there are a lot of similarities to what happened in Massachusetts a few years ago and what's going on here in California now with um, Proposition 8 that would take away the right of gay people to marry. Basically, the story of saving marriage uh, begins in November of 2003 when the court there uh, ruled that it was unconstitutional to tell gay couples they couldn't get married. That basically meant that it was then going to be legal for the first time in the United States for you know, two men or two women to get married. But immediately there were uh, conservatives within the state that wanted to prevent that from happening. And so they introduced a constitutional amendment that would basically reverse the court's decision. And so what the movie is about is the year-and-a-half-long struggle to defeat that amendment so that gay people would continue to have the right to get married in much the same way that we're have, we're have a similar fight in California going on right now. Uh, the one in California, though, the uh, the voters are going to decide. That's yeah. right. That is that's a substantial difference in Massachusetts. The decision was actually made by the legislature, and in California, it will be decided by the voters. So there are a lot more people that need to be convinced in a much shorter amount of time. What what are the lessons from uh, having done this documentary that you think could apply to California? Well, you know the. Um the the campaign here is is only a few months long, and in Massachusetts it went on for actually a couple of years. But really, all of the same um, uh, all of the same things are essentially happening here in a much more fast forward kind of way. Um, we have the public kind of freaking out over the gay marriages that already occurred, and now um, uh, and now that um, some time has gone by, people are starting to change their point of view. And you have to reach out to all of the people. Just like in Massachusetts, you, had, you really had to, re in Massachusetts, you had to go to the people even though you were trying to convince the legislators to do something. And here, of course, you do have to go to the people because they're the ones who are making the decision directly. And uh, it's really all about educating the public on, on the fact that marriage between people of the same sex is not abnormal or odd, and it's just like every other marriage. And, you know, that's, that's the lesson. It's weird that um, people get to vote on our civil rights. <laughs> I mean, don't you think it's taken for granted that people should have civil rights? Well, yeah, we didn't have did. civil, yeah, we didn't have civil rights until this decision. You know, so what they're doing about, they're really voting on whether they should take back the decision that was given to us. But uh, it, it's not as though we've had gay marriage for 10 years, and now suddenly somebody's voting to take it away. We've but only had it for a few months. The polls have, been, um, have shown that the maj a majority of Californians now support uh, the idea of gay marriage, uh, and that's a change from uh, a few years ago. Well, I think things are changing pretty quickly because now that people are seeing, you know, their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers getting married and they're seeing it on TV, and they're realizing that it's really not that big a deal. It's just like any two other people getting married. You know, if they get invited to a gay wedding, it means they have to go figure out what kind of gift they're going to buy. <laughs> so I think now that it's kind of a reality, people are realizing that it's really not as big a deal as some people might have originally thought. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is that you can't always trust the poll numbers. Um, you know, uh -huh. I think we yeah. learned that you can't always trust polls uh, during the primary election. And research has shown that probably a good 8% of people, when they're asked uh, questions about social issues by pollsters, will tend to lie. So... Uh, I don't think that uh, the no on Prop 8 side is ahead in the polls by more than 8% in some polls, and that means that we still have to work very hard to make sure that it gets defeated. 
It's also the so-called Bradley re- effect that uh, people said they were going to vote for Tom Bradley and they ended up not voting for him uh, before. And uh, how about this whole uh, ethnic diversity in the state of California? Do you think that's helping the no on nine or the pro on nine? Which side do you think they're going for, the ethnic groups in California? I think that... um I think that uh, polls have shown that there are some ethnicities that tend to be a little bit more against gay marriage and might be more prone to um, to vote in favor of Proposition 8. But then it gets back to what John said about educating people. I think once people in minority groups realize that you know gay people are a minority just like them and that they have much more in common than they have that are different, I think that those are the groups that I would think would be most likely to be against Proposition 8 because they themselves, minority groups, know what it's like to be discriminated against in one form or another. Of course, California is much more diverse than uh, Massachusetts, I would say, probably, huh? Yeah, Massachusetts is much more diverse. Yeah, (laughs) Massachusetts is a very, very white state. I mean, I don't don't think people really appreciate that the state is something like 97% white. Although in your film, you do show knocking on doors of people of color and uh, people, you know, uh, very diverse people are uh, portrayed in your in your documentary. Yes, that's that is shown, and and it's partly because um, the communities that were actually uh, approached to uh, change the legislators' votes were some were frequently uh, places where there was some diversity. In other words, in in like the city in, in areas that were just outside of Boston but are still they're kind of older suburbs mm, you know mm. there there seems there's some diversity in those areas and um uh or in, or actually in the city itself I uh, so I have that's why you see a little yeah. more then also we made it we made up we tried to make an effort to include uh some more diversity than there may actually have been in the population uh-huh. I haven't uh heard lately but a few months ago a Chinese reporter called me because a Chinese uh, group was coming out against Prop 8. This was maybe four months, three months ago. And uh, so the, the portrayal in the paper was quite interesting. It was, the much, it was a whole page coverage, but most of the coverage was to the anti, anti-gay um, Chinese groups. And they had a couple of uh, articles, uh, one or two, uh, from the pro-gay people on that page, smaller articles. But it was good that they made the effort to contact pro-gay people uh, to get their reaction or get our reaction. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and the people that, and then I think um, we as a community that wants to preserve the right of gay people to marry and defeat Proposition 8, we need to, I think we, need, we, we can't really wait for the media to contact us and write stories about us. We need to make sure that we're out there talking to people in our community and making sure that the word gets out on our own. What do you think of this idea that gay marriage is just copying straight, uh, straight, uh, straight society? Um, I know you have some clips in your film, uh, a lesbian, I believe, uh, talking about that attitude that she had before. Well, to some degree, it is copying straight uh, society in the sense that we uh, we want to have marriages that are uh, very similar to the kinds of marriages that uh, that straight people have. Um, in a in a relationship between people, two people of the same sex, there's always going to be more uh, kind of equality at the get-go because of the fact that there's you know you don't have a you don't have a person who is is uh, you know, deemed to be the superior person, like you do in a male-female relationship. So there's much more there's m- more equity, at, at least on the face of it. Obviously, every relationship is different, but um, that's one of the one of the things about same-sex marriage is that it it brings together people who are perceived by society as being roughly equal, men and men, women and women, uh, and um, those people are setting something of an example for the rest of the society in the way that they conduct their relationship. So it's not, you know, and, and I, you know, that, that, in that way, we're not exactly like uh, people that are straight that get married. Also, but in a, in a much more, yeah. you know, just a much more elementary, basic sense, get, all getting married is, is it's kind of um, pursuing the, the constitutional right to pursue your own happiness. And 
obviously gay people want to be happy too. Gay people want to do that just like straight people. And I think that's the very basic reason why, you know, we want to be able to get married as well. Do you think there's more, there's more interest in getting married now than uh, before? There was, it seems like in the gay liberation movement times, people didn't really want to get married or they were not allowed to, I guess, of course. Right. Well, I, because gay people couldn't get married, I think a lot of people, and I would include myself in that group, put our, we, we put it out of our head. Because if we can't get married, if there's something we can't do, we're not really going to pursue it. We're not going to spend a lot of time worrying about something that we can't have anyway. So I think now that all of a sudden this is an option for people, um, slowly but surely I think the idea is going to start churning in people's heads that, Perhaps uh, when they're when they're exploring somebody that they might be dating, instead of instead of asking instead of a person asking himself, oh, I wonder if he's good boyfriend material. Now maybe he's asking himself, hmm, I wonder if he's good husband material. So it's going to be sort of a slow a slow process, I think, within the gay community as as we slowly start to realize that this is an option for us. So you think there's a trend towards monogamy and away from polyamory? I think we'll probably see that again because now that there's that marriage is is more of an option, um, I think people are going to start thinking more in those terms. Not to say that a lot of people don't already. How have you seen any surveys that show how many people actually uh, have have gotten married uh, or want to get married uh, in the same sex partners? I don't know the answer. I, I, you know, there there is a record. There are records that are kept on this question, and uh, but I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, in Massachusetts, there was a, a many thousands of people got married in the first month that it was legal, and then uh, then after that, it slowed down to a trickle, and that you know that shows you there was a pent up desire among a lot of gay couples to get married, um, and once those people got married. Now the people that are getting married are people who perhaps maybe just met this year, met last year, and they're talking about marriage just like a straight couple might. And that and that's a much slower process, and it takes um, it takes the community a while to get used to this new thing that they have called marriage. Yeah, so it's slow. It's slow. It's not like everyone's rushing to get married right now. Yeah, on but, Proposition Eight, which is the proposition the Californians will get to vote on in November about gay marriage. The uh, state's analysis uh, suggests that at the beginning there'll be an increase in, uh, you know, the state will make money because uh, people will make, uh, businesses will make money because a lot more people will marry and, you know, licenses will be issued. But then it would, uh, later on there would not be any kind of, uh, it would slow down afterwards. I'm not so sure I agree with that analysis, really. I think uh, it's going to have tremendous economic uh, potential for California because, while there will be, you know, this this big surge of uh, couples yeah. getting married at the very beginning, you right. know, who've been waiting to get married, until gay marriage becomes legal in a lot of other states in this country, I think a lot of gay couples from around the country are going to come to California to get married and have their honeymoon. So I think it's going to be great for tourism and then also <laughs> for, you know, any wedding-related industries here. There's no uh, residency requirement, right? Um, correct. Right. right California now. doesn't require you to be uh, to be from California in order to um, uh, to get a marriage or to even live in California in order to get married here. The one thing that people have to bear in mind is that when they go back to their home state, of course, that their home state is going to have something to say about whether their marriage is valid or not. So what people coming from other states who get married here, they'll have a marriage in California, and as long as they're in California they'll their marriage will be valid and then when they leave california go back to their home state at least at the present time unless that home state is massachusetts they're going to have a marriage that's probably not recognized well, new, new york yeah. is another state that, york, that yeah. seems to be recognizing out-of-state marriages and you know that's somewhat in flux right now it's possible that won't last but uh, how about hawaii did, did they i thought they had uh, early on allowed gay marriage or what happened to that hawaii had marriage in the early 90s uh, pursuant to a state court decision, uh, a lower state court decision at a trial judge level, which is the lowest level, and uh. um, but it was no one ever actually got married because the tr the judge basically said that he was going to stay his decision until the higher courts could rule, and while the higher courts were considering the case, uh, and before they could rule, uh, there was an amendment passed to the Hawaii Constitution that banned gay marriage. So the court basically dismissed the case because 
once the amendment was passed, there was really nothing for the court to do. So they never had gay marriage in, in Hawaii. How, how about this federal ban? Uh, Congress passed a, a law to ban, uh, to not recognize gay marriages. How does that affect us? Well, the way the federal law works is that um, the federal law says that even if somebody gets married in a state, the federal government will not recognize it for federal purposes, which it doesn't mean that, that California marriages aren't valid. It just means that they don't have any federal protection because um, marriage has typically been something that's defined by each state, not by the federal government. Except so, that. So these, you know, these right. marriages that are, that are, um, that are um, made in California, for instance, you, they, they can't, you can't file jointly on your federal tax return. You can't have a partner become um, uh, a, um, you know, get a green card, but because you marry them, for example, that's one of the big things that's different because that's a federal law sure. that allows people to immigrate. So that sort of thing, and that's what the federal government did, and it also said that states don't have to recognize each other's marriages. Do you think um, uh, any of the candidates coming up for uh, gay marriage, like Nader or Obama or... McCain? <laughs> Kucinich, well, the one who came out for marriage was Kucinich. Ah, Other presidential candidates, to my knowledge, um, uh, have never come out in favor of gay marriage. Not Certainly Obama, Obama and McCain haven't. They, they've ah. made that clear in the debate, um, although Obama is, is much more gay-friendly than McCain is, and, and he does at least support a lot of... Um, he supports a lot of rights and uh, privileges that are afforded most married couples. He does support uh, gay couples getting those as well, but he's not going so far as to say that uh, gay couples are, you know, good enough and committed enough to be able to use the word marriage to describe their relationship. Well, what was the debate in Massachusetts over why, um, why domestic partnership was not enough and marriage was uh, essential? Well, the debate, basically the debate was that the word marriage means a lot. The word marriage automatically conveys to the rest of the world what your relationship is to another person. And then the rest of the world immediately understands what that is. They immediately respect what your relationship is. And it really means a lot by not being able to call it marriage. You're basically putting your relationship into a different category than everyone else's, even though you have the same commitment to each other. You have the same responsibilities for each other. And, and so the, you know, what they kept saying in Massachusetts, and they were absolutely right, was by not being able to call uh, their relationship a marriage, a, a, a gay couple's relationship was afforded second-class status. And this would apply also to single people that, you know, of whatever gender that want to live together, right, in the sense of uh, if, if, even if they're not married, uh, would it? I mean, would, or would not? Would they have to get married if there's a straight uh, person who's living with uh, another straight person, and they are partners. How how would that would that change for their relationship? You mean to, could two okay. straight people uh, have file for a domestic partnership without being able to get married? Oh no! What would they do? I mean, if they're a straight couple that's already living together, would uh, well they could get married in, in any way, right? But if they don't want to get married, they can still live together. Sure, of course. Anyone, anyone who wants to live together can live together. Roommates live together. But the, uh, is there still a provision for domestic partnership for people who are opposite genders? In, in California, no. The, uh, the, the marriage decision is going to essentially abolish civil oh. unions, uh, and civil unions were never available to uh, people of opposite genders. It was only for gay couples. Oh, I see. Oh, California. Okay. Now, domestic partnership is a little different. Domestic partnership was a, something below civil unions. Right. It's a registration and, and I, thing. Honestly, right? I don't remember whether that was something that, that straight couples could, get in, could, could engage in in California. I, I think that pro probably not. I thought you um, could because the registration, uh, I know I'm a UC employee, University of California, and once you live together for so many years, uh, so many months or years, you could register, and then you they could get the insurance, and it could be. It, I know. Remember the debate or uh, discussion? It applied to people who were not um, same gender, also. That was true in colleges, and uh, that's true that universities, and, and you know, which were actually um, groundbreakers on yeah. this, uh, trailblazers on this, a marriage issue and on domestic partnership. They were some of the first groups to have domestic partnerships, but that's only. The domestic partnership you just mentioned was for purposes of that university, 
And uh -huh. so the university may have created opposite gender domestic partnerships, but that's not really the trend in the country. No, I think they yeah, have to in, register. In, in other words, and the governments aren't generally doing that. You know, an individual university may do that, but not the government. No, they, the requirement was to register with, either with the state or with some other form, but oh. you had to Secretary of State. So yeah. I don't know what happens to that a registration yeah. formality. Yeah. Uh, how about in terms of your film? Why did you go to, I mean, you're California-based, right? Uh, and why did you go to Massachusetts to do this? Well, this is where history was taking place. You know, when three years ago, four years ago, when this decision came down, actually it's closer to five. Wow. Um, the, the, this was the, the, Massachusetts was where the marriage movement was and where the best chance was for there to be marriage. And so, and, and, and the decision was such a groundbreaking one and the fact that the political system seemed set up to give us a decent chance of keeping the decision, uh, we, we realized history, it was history being made and we, ha we went there. Yeah, the film is a fascinating look at the grassroots politics and how it changed people's minds, actually. Uh, changed legislators' minds, also. Uh, why do you think they change in the end? I think people's minds change in the end because they realize that society was better off with gay people being able to get married and form these commitments and these relationships than, than the, the society was when people couldn't do that. And they realized that it wasn't really affecting their lives, it wasn't affecting the lives of other people in their community, and so there was really no reason to, to take that right away. And uh, did you see any, um, I mean, has it continued? Has this kind of more progressive or more liberal stance continued in other areas of uh, Massachusetts uh, legislation, for instance? Well, there's not much left to do in Massachusetts, you know. I mean, the only other thing that is really important that's still on the line in Massachusetts is some things relating to schools because, the, you know, kids still need to be protected from discrimination. They need to, they, you know, the schools need to make policies about what the children are going to be actually taught in the public school. And those things conti continue to be an issue because even, you know, since children can't get married, they're gay kids issues have more to do with the way that they're treated in school and what they learn. So there, you know, there is still some work to do in that, those areas, and Massachusetts is on the vanguard of those areas as well. Um, I think with marriage having been one, you know, it's all downhill from here. How about the other? Yeah, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Dan. The other thing okay. about marriage that's really important to keep in mind, though, is that the right to get the the right for gay people to get married is really not just about two people who want to get married. I mean, this is affecting the entire gay community it's affecting all of society because when gay people are able to get married uh, and you know that means that a, a gay person's relationship is kind of on par in the same language as used for a straight person's relationship that means that straight people the community society at large is going to start thinking in different terms about what a gay relationship is and if they start thinking in different terms about what a gay relationship is, that means they're going to start changing their attitudes about gay people in general. And that is going to change the world that kids grow up in. So I think gay marriage just being around is, is I, I, it's not an understatement to say that gay marriage is making the world a better place. How about, uh, you mentioned schools. How about the, f the point about gay teenagers? How would they, uh, how would they, um, uh, how, how does... How does the law currently treat, uh, I mean, are they allowed to form groups in schools and all that? Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah, in California? Yeah. Yeah, gay kids are allowed to create groups, and there's actually been a few attempts by some of the more conservative school districts or just misguided uh, administrators to stop that from happening or discourage it, and, and generally those cases, those wind up in court, uh, and the school district generally backs down. So, yes. Students are, uh, many students are very active in creating these groups, and, uh, uh, you know, ironically, there are groups in some schools where there's virtually no gay kids, or at least openly gay kids, and the kids that are pushing the group are actually all straight. Sure. Um, yeah. And, 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 but these groups are, uh, these groups are popping up all over California, and there's no law against them, and they're actually being encouraged. Yeah, and we've covered some of those cases on the show, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about in terms of uh, age of consent? I know there are a lot of gay teenagers who want to, you know, come out and um, have relationships. And how 
is, is Massachusetts does it have a lower age of consent than California? I don't think so. I think that I think the laws are pretty uniform on that in the country. And I, I no, I don't think they are. There's some states are 16 and some oh, okay. are 17. Yeah, I, I haven't right. heard anything about lowering the age of consent in uh, Massachusetts. Right, right. How about in terms of? Uh, do you think that? Um, how did it? Did was it helpful in Massachusetts' case? Was it? Um, who who do you think was was the the force behind the change? Was it grassroots activists? Uh, or was it uh, celebrities that came out, uh, or legislators, or whatever? In Massachusetts, yeah. it was definitely at the grassroots. It was uh, the the change really came about because people at an individual level started talking to their friends about why this was important, and enough people talked about it that it just kind of spread geometrically, and and that was sort of how the how the change came about. There aren't really a lot of celebrities in Massachusetts. <laughs> Except maybe the Catholic Church people, and they're not—they're not, they're not right. celebrities anymore, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, Mitt Romney was their biggest celebrity at the time, and he was definitely not on our side. Ah, yeah. So I was impressed that you got a whole variety of uh, people in the film to talk about their relationships, also. And it seemed there was a lot of not just young people, because you would expect young people to uh, jump at this chance, but there were also a lot of. Uh, people of a different generation who are uh, older people who uh, were uh, were able to to get married. Interestingly, it was really it was the older people that were really kind of chomping at the bit to jump at the chance to get married oh, because okay. they were the ones that had been together for 10, 20, 30 years, and only until 2004 were, had the right to finally be able to get married. So, you know, kind of that, that glut of marriages that John talked about earlier, for the most part, I think were older people. And the younger people, just like, just like younger straight people, you know, they sort of have marriage in the back of their mind, but for the most part, they're going to tend to maybe wait a little bit longer until they're older. So um, so I, I think there were probably fewer young people that, that did get married, just kind of in the same ratio that young straight people get married. They meet and they fall in love, and eventually they decide that they want to spend their lives together. What were some of the arguments the right wing um, brought up against gay marriage? Was it character stuff? Was it promiscuity? Was it all sorts of that kind of stuff? I, I think they pretty much threw whatever at the wall they could and whatever stock that was uh, that was kind of the argument that they used the The most prevalent argument that I heard against gay marriage was that it's always been between a man and a woman. you know marriage for the last thousands of years has been between a man and a woman, so why change it now? You know that was kind of that was kind of the argument that I always seemed to hear. And of course, the response to that is you know marriage has always been a changing institution. I mean marriage used to be more about making, you know, a wife or wives property, uh, and it had nothing to do with, with love. And, and then even in slightly more modern times, uh, marriages were, were set up by families for economic reasons, had nothing to do with love, and up until 1967, marriages couldn't even be between people of different races, even if they were right. in love. Right, that's for sure. And even now there's arranged marriages going on. Somewhere in right. the world, arranged Somewhere marriages. Somewhere in the world, right? Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. So yeah, marriage is a is a, a constantly changing institution. And um, did you uh, the, the the film has gone through the festival circuit and now is uh, being released uh, in theaters? That's right. Um, in Orange County, uh, which I think most of you are listening, the uh, closest place to see the film is in Hollywood at the Regent Showcase Theater. It opens October 17th, and the Regent Showcase is on La Brea, just south of Beverly Boulevard uh, in Hollywood. And they can get their, they can get that location information, information yeah. about the movie at our website, which uh, you, are you going to mention the website name? Sure, go ahead. www.savingmarriagethemovie.com. <laughs> Savingmarriagethemovie.com. Well, thank you very much, uh, John uh, Henning. And uh, um, Mike Roth. Mike Roth, sorry. <laughs> and uh, Mike Roth is producer director, and John Henning is also producer director of this new film uh, documentary on called Saving Marriage. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks so uh, much for, for being having on the show. Thanks for having thank us. you. Bye bye. Bye bye bye. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KUCI eighty eight point nine FM in Irvine. Uh, coming up uh, in our second half of our. Uh, 
uh, hour, we'll be we'll be talking with uh, we'll be airing a talk we uh, had with one of the more interesting uh, radicals from the '60s, um, who is now a respected professor of education, and is uh, now again caught in the maelstrom of political controversy uh, with the McCain camp. Uh, Palin especially, um, Sarah Palin, uh, in Orange County even, uh, attacking him for palling around, palling around with terrorists. And so we had talked, we had the opportunity of talking with Bill Ayers uh, when, uh, after his book came out, Fugitive Days. So we asked him about how he saw his fugitive days uh, back in, 2002, April, when we first aired this program, on this program, an interview with him. So we're going to hear excerpts from that early interview, because now, of course, he's not uh, talking to anybody, <laughs> and uh, uh, for good reason. But uh, it's important to hear what he had to say, and also uh, there is on the web a petition to support Bill Ayers, uh, at www.supportbillairs.org and uh, you can uh, get that link. Uh, we'll put that on our Subversity site. Uh, we have a, a quick uh, URL now, uh, KUCI.org, KUCI.org slash Subversity. Uh, there's a quick link to, th- to that, to our website now. And so we'll be putting that link up online uh, so let's take a break and we'll get back, come back with our interview with uh, Mr. or Professor uh, Bill Ayers, who is uh, now being demonized by the right and maybe by the left, uh, some of the left, uh, some of the more mainstream left. Um, he has done incredible work in education. Uh, in reforming education in Chicago area. And um, so he doesn't deserve this kind of demeaning attacks. Um, but the McCain cap seems quite desperate to win, uh, to want to win, given their poll numbers are not good. And so they're throwing everything in to smear um, Obama and also his supposed relationship with uh, Bill Ayers. So let's uh, take a break and we will come back and listen to portions of our interview with Bill Ayers. We'll be uh, running and um, putting on our interview with uh, Bill Ayers in a sec. And um, this is an interview we did uh, back in uh, 2002, 2002 with Bill Ayers. In a book about his uh, fugitive days, yeah, that's the name of his book, from Deacon Press. Um, do you feel that after 9-11, that you, are there things you regret writing in this book, in this memoir? I don't think there's anything I regret writing. I was writing a memoir of events that took place over 30 years ago. Uh, and what I, try, what I take the requirement of memoir to do is to try to recapture the sights and sounds and smells and feel of a, of, a, of a particular world, a particular moment, and then to set a person loose in that moment and see what it felt like to be there then. As I reread the book, I felt that um, in the main, it succeeded as memoir. It was not a manifesto, it was not a defense, it was not a judgment, but rather it was an attempt to take readers with me um, into uh, an extreme moment in American history when I was a young person.
about um, the criticism of, that you didn't, that you were, I mean, there's some people argue that you were just uh, blowing up things without any reason. Well, you know, people argue a lot of things, but what I tried to do, again, was to show to, to the world that I tried to take you into was a world from 1965 to 1975. Those are the years of the American war in Vietnam. Uh, in those years, the American government... Um, brought a terrorist war against the Vietnamese people. Three million people were killed. Those of us who began kind of waking up and seeing what was happening and opposing the war um, did, by 1970, move in a very, um, uh, you know, in a way that was extreme and in some cases off the tracks. But here's the, let me give you a little bit of the chronology. In 1965, at the University of Michigan, I was arrested along with 39 other people sitting in at a draft board opposing the war. Uh, at that same demonstration, there were over a thousand students surrounding us who thought we should be expelled from school. So there were 39 of us against the war in that rally, and way more than that uh, who were for the war. By 1968, the majority of the American people opposed the war. How did that happen? Well, it happened because for two reasons, really two big reasons. I mean, a smaller reason was that we organized and demonstrated and knocked on doors and tried to convince people that the war was immoral, illegal, uh, and should be ended. But the biggest reasons that the sentiment of the country changed were two. In the first place, the black civil rights movement was setting the moral agenda as well as the tactical agenda for the, for the country. And so issues of social justice and fairness and equity were in the air. And so when, when the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee said in the, in the mid-60s, no black American should go 10,000 miles away to fight for a freedom that he doesn't enjoy in Mississippi, that shook the country up. When a young Muhammad Ali said, I won't serve in the white man's army to dominate people of color, and in fact he said, no Viet Cong ever called me nigger, when he said that, the whole country really started to tremble. And when Martin Luther King said, risking his great prestige and the great support he had from liberals and from the labor community and so on, when he said the war is immoral and the war should end, the, the handwriting was on the wall. The other thing that happened between 1965 and 1968 is that massive numbers of young people began returning from the war, working class kids, mostly kids of color. And they described what they saw there, and they were horrified about what they'd been asked to participate in. And when they lined up on the steps of the Capitol and whipped the medals off their chests and threw them back at the war makers, once again, the country was shook up to its core. So by 1968, we all thought the war would end. I remember when Lyndon Johnson stepped down from his attempt to be reelected and said, I'm going to try to concentrate instead on ending this war. We rallied at the University of Michigan, and the president of the university said to us, congratulations, you've won a great victory, now the war will end. And he believed it, and we believed it, in late March 1968. A week later, King was killed, and America went up in flames. A year later, we knew that the war not only wouldn't end, but that it would escalate. And at that point, hard decisions were being made. The, you know, some people joined the Democratic Party and tried to build a peace movement uh, within the party. Some people organized in working class communities. Some people moved to communes. I and a small group of other people began to build a clandestine capacity to take the war to the war makers and to resist what we thought was a coming repression. We saw it everywhere. Were we wrong? I don't know if we were wrong. We were deciding in a very complicated set of circumstances. You're right. People have criticized me for not being sorry about it. And I would say this. Every day that the war went on, 2,000 innocent people were killed. Every day for seven years that that war dragged on, 2,000 more people were killed. Trying to stand up against that terror took a certain amount of, uh, of uh, determination. Um, and I'm not sorry about anything that I participated to try to end that war or against that government that was waging that war. I have a 
Michigan, uh, where you, uh, I went to school like about six years after you in Ann Arbor, and I, re I remember, I remember running into people that were in the White Panther Party. Were you part of that? No, I wasn't, although I had many, many good friends who were there. In fact, I ran into John Sinclair a month ago, um, who's living in New Orleans, doing very much what he always did. Um, but the White Panther Party was a group of cultural revolutionaries, mainly, uh, the Motor City Five and the, um, you know, Iggy Pop and a whole bunch of people were around that. Uh, they were, they were artists and um, anarchists and drug, you know, dope smokers and uh, and really a good group of people. Um, they they thought we were way too earnest. Chad used to criticize me for being way way too earnest. Uh, and he's probably right. You mean too serious? Yeah, earnest. I mean serious. Not just serious, but serious to a fault. Serious to the point that you couldn't see irony or humor or contradiction in matters. You saw it too one-dimensionally. So, um, so why was the what led to the use of um, of bombs? I guess uh, I can understand going underground and and fighting the government. But what what do you think was your thinking that that was necessary to go? Uh, bombs and public buildings and stuff. Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, you would know if you, I mean, you, any of your listeners who want to read the book, you'll see kind of where the logic took us, but, or took me, right. but, um, but I would say this, that I, you know, I make a great distinction, even today, between what I would call terrorism and what I would call political violence and what I would call the responsibility of citizens. In my view, um, terrorism is always wrong. It's always wrong. It's never defensible. Even if the cause is just, what we saw on September 11th was a pure act of terrorism in an unjust cause. Um, but even if the cause were just, um, terrorism is always wrong. Why? Because terrorism targets, in the, uh, targets innocents, civilians, um, random people just walking down the street uh, for violence, and it does it in a way that um, is designed to sow fear into people. Now, defining it that way, you can recognize that terrorism isn't just the property of an individual. It's not just the property of a sect or an organization. But states and governments can participate in terrorism. And in fact, almost all of them have. Go back in history. The Roman, the Roman legions were terrorists. The Ottoman Turks were terrorists. The Incas were terrorists. And so were the Spanish who conquered the Incas. So you have a long history, and in, and in, in the United States history, we have several instances of terrorism. One of, the, one of the more recent ones being Vietnam. That was a war of terror waged against civilians, intentionally designed to hurt people, innocent people, in order to dissuade them from going in a certain political direction. That's terrorism. So I'm opposed to it. But I'm not always opposed to the use of violence to oppose violence. I think sometimes you have to respond uh, to an attack by fighting back. And so, for example, if you're walking down the street innocently and two people jump upon you, or you're walking down the street with a friend and they jump on her, don't you have a responsibility to, to, to fight back? Most of us would say we do. But that's, uh, some would say that's just self-defense. But you think it is self-defense, what you did? In that case, it's self-defense. What about this? What about... If you're living in a city, say New York, and people are aiming missiles at you, do you have a responsibility to resist that, to fight back? Of course you do. What if it happens to be not New York City, but Hanoi, Vietnam? What if a great power is dropping bombs on the civilian population of Hanoi? Do you have a responsibility to fight back? I think you do. And if you do, then what's the responsibility of someone who is a citizen of the country that's visiting that violence upon Hanoi. I think the, the responsibility is to try to stop the airplanes from taking off. And essentially, that's what I did. I tried to stop the airplanes from taking off. Uh, and you also targeted uh, buildings, but not people, right? Never people. Never civilians, never innocent people, never anybody. We not only didn't, not only did we design what we did to cause no bodily harm to anyone, we never harmed anyone. Never killed anyone. Never even hurt anyone. 
So this idea that somehow we were terrorists, when in fact, all around us, the terror war waged, you know, waged on and on and on. So I find it quite hypocritical when I get letters from people saying, aren't you ashamed of yourself for being a terrorist? And I typically respond by trying to explain in a very dispassionate way that I never was a terrorist, that I flirted with the idea once upon a time but never carried it off. On the other hand, we all know for sure that the president of the New School for Social Research, Senator Terry from Nebraska, did participate in terrorism. He's a nice guy. He's a good guy. I know him. And I like him in many ways. But, but if somebody's writing me a letter asking me to, um, to account for my behavior, I want them to call Senator Terry and ask him to account for his behavior because he did behave as a terrorist, and I never did. But of course, one of your best friends uh, died in a, um, um, in a uh, townhouse, right, in East Village. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My mother and two of my best friends, yeah. Oh. And that, that was a total accident. That was an accident, but, and they blew themselves up. But in my book, I speculate about whether that accident might have been caused by one of them. So I'm not certain what happened. Nobody is. I wasn't there. Um, but I think that, that at that point, the people that I was close to, including those three people, had gone in many ways off the deep end, and we were considering the possibility of answering official government terror with a terror of our own, but we never pulled it off. Well, who, who are the ideological um, kind of uh, the the kind of the leaders of who were the people that you admired at the time? Was it Mao? Was it Ho Chi Minh? Or who? I don't think I admire. I mean, I think I admire a lot of people, but the people that um, that I look to. Um, for as kind of mentors and and um, people who I think taught me a lot about the world and about about social justice, I would say I would start right here at home. I would say Ella Baker, Septima Khan, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Bob Moses. Um, these are people who influenced me tremendously, as well as artists and writers like James Baldwin, Sonia Sanchez. Um, these are people who influenced me a lot. Miles Horton great educator um, and 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 so that was my those were some of my influences I knew a few of those people um, but they all influenced me and nationally certainly the struggle of the Cuban people led by by Fidel Castro and Che Guevara influenced me the struggle of the Vietnamese people was decisive for me why because it's the place where the United States my government my country was involved in um, uh, in a very bad business. And since it was my country, I looked at it very closely. And what I saw was terrible. And uh, I knew that I had to oppose it. I was a kid who grew up in tremendous privilege. I grew up in tremendous, um, almost suffocating, almost blinding privilege. And I made a decision to try to see the world as it really was. Seeing the world as it really is puts you into a a zone of discomfort, but you then have to decide, is, is my morality just for my little town here, for just my little tribe, or does it apply to all people? And I think the moral response during the Vietnam War, which most Americans eventually came to, was to oppose that war. Your, uh, your father was head of a utility company That's right. uh, in Chicago. Yeah. And chairman of Did he, 30 years. That's right. Did he, uh, did he finally come come around to your point of view? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> no, but he's still living, and we're, we're very good friends, but, but he's, he's quite old now and retired. So, um, did, were you able to, I mean, you said you lived a privileged life. Did, were you able to use any of the money from your family to fund your underground life? No, because I was, I was by that time cut off from my family. I mean, I had cut myself off. One of the themes of the book, really, right. is the theme of exile. Uh, from a very early age, I recognized that if I was going to understand any other human beings, I was going to have to exile myself from the padded, privileged suburbs of the 1950s. And I did. I, w I joined the Merchant Marines. I moved away to Ann Arbor from the suburbs of Chicago. But I discovered something very important, and I think it's a lesson for all of us, and that is 
in order to become one with humanity, you must feel not at home in your home. In other words, you must feel a bit of estrangement from your own local situation in order to see the world larger. And I think that that's something that, that we should all recognize today. If we want to know the world we live in, we have to open our eyes. That means, for example, after September 11th, I asked one of my classes if, if everyone would draw a freehand sketch of Central Asia. And they couldn't, and I couldn't. And the fact is, we, in many ways, as Americans, don't know where in the world we are. We are 5% of the world's population, but we think of ourselves as way more important than we are, partly because we consume 50% of the world's stuff. And that gives us a distorted view. That privilege gives us a distorted view of our own power and our own goodness. Um, I argue that exile is a good thing for those of us who are living privileged lives. In order to connect with humanity, you have to leave America, metaphorically, uh, mentally, imaginatively, at the very least. Uh, some of the people you um, you hung out with underground had uh, gone to Central America or gone to other places, right? Yes. Yes. And so the, they they saw uh, America in, in different eyes after being able to. That's true. They saw it, but they saw the bad side of it. Um, they saw the ways in which America is not a benign and beneficent presence in everybody's lives. In many ways, America is a, is a malignant presence in people's lives, and. Um, when we see the events of September 11th and people say, uh, you know, great powerful politicians say, well, they hate us because of our democracy. On the contrary, uh, everyone I know from around the world admires the democratic institutions and the prosperity. What they don't admire is our willingness to enter their lives in ways that disrupt them, that are cruel, that are oppressive, that are exploitative. Uh, and it's our responsibility as citizens to see that, to understand that, and to object to that. So again, if there's a lesson in the book, it's the value of, of, of exile as a perspective. It's also the responsibility to act on what you know about your country, your government, uh, what it does in your name. And then there's a third lesson, and that's the lesson to beware of your own dogma, beware of your own self-righteousness. It's never enough to know that the other guy is that the government say is making mistakes or is wrong in certain ways, it's also important to examine your own assumptions, your own dogma. Do you, do you wish you had done more of that? Do I wish I'd done more of that? Yeah. Absolutely. I wish I'd been smarter, wiser, more compassionate, more capable, more um, uh, humane, more... Uh, you know, centered, more in harmony with myself, sure, all that. So when people, if you wonder, do I have regrets, many, many, many regrets, but is one of those regrets that I took extreme measures against the United States at a time of tremendous crisis? No, it is not. That I don't regret that. It would be like saying, you know, let's take another American historical moment, during slavery. Some people, not the majority, but some people in the North um, helped slaves to escape. Uh, the majority of the people opposed slavery by the 1850s, but only a few were willing to act on that opposition. When the United States government passed the Fugitive Slave Law, the Underground Railroad largely collapsed. Why? Because most people, in their privilege, weren't willing to risk their um, freedom or their lives on behalf of black slaves in the South. A few forged ahead, John Brown, John Brown's family, those types of people. But the fact is that a violent, horrible institution was living right at the heart of American society, and only a few people opposed it. Thirty years after the fact, if you were to say to Owen Brown, for example, do you regret being, you know, taking up arms against the government? I think he would be foolish to say, I regret it. He may regret a lot of things. But to regret fighting against slavery would be foolish to take that back. Well, I don't think that what we were fighting against was at that quite that level of catastrophe, but it was a human catastrophe, and our government was dead wrong, and what we did to oppose it was, in the same sense that they were wrong, it was right. 
you know, I remember the 60s as a time of um, a lot of political debate, you know, long meetings discussing different, uh, you know, strategies, different uh, positions, uh, different party lines. Uh, was Life Underground a series of debates on political uh, positions, or was it more mundane? Well, we had a, we, we were all extremely political people, and uh, in that sense, we loved meetings, and we loved debate, and we loved discussion, and we loved finding new readings and chewing on them forever. On the other hand, I think that we had developed, by the late 60s, we, I mean myself and a few of my close associates, a style of debate and discussion that was counterproductive. We were mostly into shouting one another down and posing rather than thinking. And I think that that ended very soon after we went underground. So while we were still incurably political in the best sense of the word, um, I don't think that we were um, as intolerant, as, uh, as self-righteous, uh, as dogmatic in our, in our political exchange. Do you think uh, to return to some of our roots, which, are, which, which had to do with being honest about your willingness to engage in political discussion and political debate, but also being willing to let practice be the judge of who had the right position, rather than who shouted the loudest, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, did being a man have a lot to do with the shouting? I think so. I think the style of debate was macho. I think it was male-dominated. I think it was um, uh, it was uh, it was certainly a, a male uh, form of exchange, you know, standing up and kind of shaking your fist and making your intellectual points and picking them off your uh, your notes. Yeah, I think it was a male uh, way of being. And I think that when we were underground, uh, first of all, women, uh, you know, ascended in terms of the leadership, and also we developed a style that was much more powered from the women's movement, and that is consensus rather than, you know, shouting debates, uh, a sense of being willing to sit in a circle and talk things through and listen, uh, a willingness to see complicated issues as complicated and nuanced rather than uh, one-sided. Yeah, I think we borrowed a lot from, and learned a lot from the women's movement. So more, uh, more focus on the process. Well, I don't know, I don't know about more, more focus, but certainly there was a sense that the process mattered. Um, it didn't necessarily matter, it, it wasn't necessarily superior to the conclusion, but it certainly mattered in coming to some of the right conclusions. We pulled way back from the style and stance of kind of um, macho bully boy tactics into a much more consensus-driven kind of approach. Uh, in the book you talk about noticing all the women uh, a lot more than the men, I guess. I talk about what? Uh, noticing more of the women. Noticing them in what sense? Uh, finding them more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> True. But uh, did you have any close male friends? Yeah, Jeff Jones was my best friend, and I write about Jeff, and Terry Robbins was a good friend, and he's one of the people who died in the townhouse, and I write about Terry. Um, you know, I think that we, that, that I had many, many good friends. My brother was and is a very good friend of mine. Um, but I still found then, and, I, and you know, that 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 women, Bernadine in particular, in many ways, um, added a dimension of thoughtfulness and and uh, seriousness that was lacking in some of my relationships with men at that time. Uh, so that was our uh, interview that we aired uh, back in 2002 with Bill Ayers, who's now the subject of intense media attention because. Um, the losing McCain, it seems, is uh, using um, Obama's uh, acquaintance with uh, Ayers. Uh, he lives in the neighborhood, and uh, Obama was also on a nonprofit board with him and um, held a fundraiser at his house, um, using that uh, connection to smear him. Uh, Palin said... Uh, last weekend that he was palling around, that um, Obama had been palling around with domestic terrorists. Uh, but the New York Times has been uh, looking into this and uh, found that actually there was more a remote connection in the last few years at least. Uh, but even so, uh, we're happy to associate with uh, Bill Ayers and uh, we were happy to have him on the show. 
and there's a uh, petition going on to support Bill Ayers, and we'll be putting that up online on our website at KUCI slash Subversity. Uh, this is Dan Zhang signing off, and earlier we talked with the directors of a new movie, Saving Marriage, about the campaign for and against gay marriage in the state of Massachusetts. And it's relevant because in California, there'll be a vote uh, in November on Proposition 8 on the same issue. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI.